Okay, so you're on the East Coast with me. We're in I'm, the same time zone, my friend. <laughs> I'm officially, which is throwing me off because our headquarter, well, until yesterday, our headquarter was in Central and most of our leadership team, or about 50% of our leader leadership team is still in Central. Um, so it, it's very weird. I am here. I will say, though, um, it was not easy to get here. <laughs> That's why I look like this. If anyone's looking at a video or like a clip of this, like this is what I look like when I get out of the bed and out of the shower. So this is the real Amanda, if anybody ever wanted to know, because um, we are like still like living in like a construction zone, getting ready um, over the next couple of days. I don't know how you did it. You drove cross country with a six-year-old and a, wait, is Ray nine months, eight months? She's nine months next week. Yeah, eight months. So. Okay. Oh my God, that just sounds like, yeah, to me, Isla hates the car. So I'm like, any trip longer than an hour and a half just sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. My six-year-old got way too much iPad, more than I want to admit um, out loud. And then Ray, my eight-month-old, um, had a fever for the first three days of it. So she slept the whole time. So it was actually really great the beginning, but then we caught her cold. And then it that was like not fun at all in the middle. And then we ended up, though, when she had the cold, we ended up in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which I had never heard of, which is where Dollywood is. And it is um, it is Cowboy Disney. Like, I mean, cow, Cowgirl Disney, Cowboy Disney. It was incredible. We, we were about an hour there, and my six-year-old goes, this place is paradise, mama. And I was like... <laughs> Court, like it was roller coasters and if, if if no one has ever been there you guys all need to plan to go to pigeon forge for the weekend um it was really crazy so i listened to this interview with jane fonda and she was talking about how when she and dolly parton did was it nine to five they like got together and they just like traveled around that area and like drank moonshine and just lived a very different lifestyle <laughs> but see that's what I, like i thought it was going to be like grandma swinging on porches and moonshine and it was that but then it was also like museums and restaurants and amusement parks and like and a lot of them like we're not talking about like a little teeny strip it was like vegas just 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 not vegas like definitely not as like luxury like you know there was not as many drunk people as vegas either in my opinion um but no it was really 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 cool i was actually telling because my my husband is the CTO of Emma, and he of course drove with me. Um, and we were actually saying it would be such a fun place to do like a little um, Emma team retreat because the kids would have stuff to do. It is economical to be there; like it's really fun, cool team building. So um, if I can get our our act together, I think next summer we'll plan our first like big work retreat with the families out there. So that would be so fun. Wait, so are you in your house now, or are you staying? with family until you're settled so i'm looking at my house being built across the street and i am sitting on the floor of his home that he like just like opened up the keys to yes. um yeah so that's what we're doing and we're we're putting some like office equipment in here so i don't need to sit on the floor so i can work the rest of the summer until till my house is ready but it was um it was just it's like the the trip was great and then like it just like got like bad like then like nobody wanted to drive anymore we were sick we got some like really bad news that I had to deal with all weekend and wanted to wait till Monday to share with people because you don't want to ruin everyone's weekend. So it's just like the trip started out on like a real high and it just kind of like went went downhill really fast. And it's it's funny how life is. Like you're sitting in Pigeon Forge, you're like, 
this is amazing. Like all this amazing stuff is happening and it's so great. I'm in this like super cool place, like building the home. And then we got here and I was like, bad news. Is this my life? I don't have a home. Like, it's just, it's funny how life is a, it's, it's a here. Yeah. It's a I mean, I was telling you before we hopped on here, I'm like, I had a very weird weekend and my nervous system just feels shot. <laughs> I'm sure yours is like the same. It's just the ups and downs. It's uh, Yeah. I think, I think all of us feel like this. I mean, Morgan, obviously, like, I mean, the people in this call know um, about the bad news because we talked about it before. So I think all of our nerves are a little bit shot. But Ron, how was your, your trip in, our producer Ron is listening, how was your trip in Dallas? You were on vacation last week too. Yeah, it was good. Uh, my in-laws live in Dallas. It's where Laurel, uh, my wife, grew up. So we went to visit them for the 4th of July. Uh, usually we're not able to stay a whole week, but we were able to this time. We brought our three dogs, our two kids, to combine them with their three dogs and their three kids, all staying in one house. Um, so it was, you know, luckily we came back on Saturday. So I had yesterday to get my little mini vacation from my actual vacation. Um, but we had a good time. Dallas is a really cool place. You know, I, I, the first few times I went there, I wasn't a big fan of it because I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana, small city with a lot of culture. Um, and Dallas, I was just like, this place is huge. I don't even know what to do here, but there's tons of things to do there. So we always had something to do each day. It was a really good time. The kids really loved it. That's it's amazing. It's good. I'm happy to hear that. So yeah, we, it was we, watched, we watched the hot dog eating contest on the July 4th. That's our kind of uh, tradition. We eat hot dogs as we watch people wolf down hot dogs and try to <laughs> yeah. open our own meals as we watch it. It's disgusting. Okay. okay. I have a question about that though. When you're watching these people inhale these hot dogs, does it make you want to eat more hot dogs or less hot dogs? Like how does that impact everyone's hot dog eating as a viewer? It's really funny. So my youngest kid, Milo, he ate four hot dogs while watching it, wanting to go in for his fifth one. Meanwhile, my sister-in-law, Lindsay, she was holding back vomit the entire time. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like I would like get excited and eat the hot dogs before they started. Then once they were doing it, I would be like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, it make me feel sick. I like, yeah. it's too, like my mirror neurons are firing. I'm like too empathetic. I just see it. I'm like, oh, I'm going through it even though I'm not actually going through it. It was a lot more tolerable to watch before they started dipping the bread in the water. Once that strategy became normal, it just became a whole new disgusting thing to watch. <laughs> and you guys, you guys did you have your own little stream? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I did that for a pizza one time and it was, it was not a, a wise thing to do. I tried to eat a whole pizza on live stream and I failed. <laughs> Oh my God, you did? Yeah, and, and it was for my previous company too. It was like a live stream for like a rally marketing thing where it was watch our president try to eat a whole pizza. More importantly, do you have that video and could you send it to Oh yeah, I can, I can send it to y'all. Was the failure that it ended in vomit or was the failure that it just, you, you were stuck? It, it did not end in a reversal of fortune as it's called right. in the hot dog eating contest. Um, it just ended with me having like a slice and a pizza left. But I also decided to mic myself up to just like so people could hear me better. But all they really heard was just me chewing, smacking, and swallowing just because yeah. the microphone was right on my neck. And then like probably gagging at the end, like oh. The comments just started pouring in once I started doing it, and they were like, "This is disgusting." <laughs> um, I better perform well though. People love that kind of stuff. It, it, it came from whenever the pandemic first started and I was just kind of like a creative low. I had my big beard. I had really long hair, couldn't get a haircut. So I was like, I'm going to shave my beard live on stream. 
Uh, and so I did it and that went off like gangbusters. People were bored with the pandemic, so they tuned into that and it just was kind of a continuation of that. Continuation of that. I love that. We should, um, I don't know, Morgan, maybe we should start live streaming something. I should have live streamed my drive, my my, dri my drive from heaven that turned into the drive from hell. I should have live streamed that. Even just the commentary between you and Vish was just the little bits that I caught would have yeah. been great live commentary. You could have been your own little reality TV show for a week. <laughs> sure, you all really enjoyed that. Morgan talked to us 13 minutes before we pulled in um, to our location. And I was um, going on and on about how my husband had a man cold and he was not super amused. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, which by the way, like how unfair of me again, because like, you know, hindsight is 50 50 or whatever the heck that saying is, he got drove all 30 six hours or whatever of it. And, and there's me, you know, in like the last 13 seconds, 13 minutes to be exact and being like, oh, he has a man cold. Like how insensitive, like it's so funny. The things that they look different in a different day, don't they? They do, they really do. So, well, speaking about a different day, this podcast episode has Russ Foltzmith, who is an amazing, amazing advisor, mentor of us and talk about somebody who sees things, I think often from like a different light. So I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this podcast episode. I think you're either going to love it or hate it. I, I don't think there's going to be much of an in-between, um, but I think Russ is an absolute genius. And I think he um, always puts things into a, a different light than the way that I'm looking at them. And I felt like he did that a bit on that episode. So, yeah, he's just such a great guy. So I've been talking to him offline about schools because he and his wife run a school in Venice Beach. Um, and we're considering in Rolling Island, like a decentralized learning program, which just so happens to be, I didn't realize this, but that's the type of school that he and um, Danny run in Venice Beach. And like they use Socratic discussion to help kids like think critically and um, find sort of like an innate drive for learning. And when I learned that, that he's involved in that type of school, I was like, oh, like our meetings make so much sense. This podcast will make so much sense. Like the way that he engaged, it's not like teacher learner. It's very much like we are co-creating. We're in this together. Let's have like a, a discussion that's more about pushing the boundaries and like no right or wrong answer and just bringing what, what you're learning and what you're excited about. So mm. it's fun to put those two things together. Yeah, that's not, that's not very surprising that yeah. he, I didn't, I didn't realize that was like the theology, if that's the right word, to his school um, syllabus or, you know, philosophy or whatever. That's really yeah. interesting. So, well, either way, I think we'll all go back into our, our realities that I'm sure will be very happy and sunny um, in just a week, but we'll all go back and go live those. And I hope that you all really just enjoy this podcast episode and that you're having a sunny week. And if it's gloomy, it's probably going to be sunny next week. So just, you know, <laughs> wait for the sun to come back, people. Hang on tight. <laughs> it's a Dollywood roller coaster. Okay, bye. <laughs> so I'm so excited to have our guest, Russell Folk Smith, on the line today. Um, today's show is going to be a little bit different because we do not have an outline. There's no specific topics. There's no specific AI stories that we're going to be talking about. Um, because as always, whenever Russ is in my life, he... I think unintentionally sometimes makes me uncomfortable so I can find new space to grow and do new things. Um, I met Russ when Emma was in the Techstars program a couple of years ago and Russ is hands down my number one mentor and advisor that I go to for 
every wacky idea or every really specific, I don't know, tech staff question that I have. So I'm so excited to have Russ on the call today with Morgan. Russ, do you mind um, just introducing yourself a little bit to everyone? I don't mind. I do have to uh, tell any other mentor and advisor that might be listening to this that while I appreciate the accolades. You don't like it. Um, I didn't get a t-shirt that said number one mentor. So I'm not sure it's official. It's official, um, official. But I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so I'm Russ. Uh, I do a lot of things, but a lot of them are actually all relating quite simple. Uh, I have a math degree, uh, but I did a lot of theater. Uh, and in business, I've done a lot of product and tech uh, that involves a lot of math and a lot of theater. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I help other entrepreneurs do math and theater. Uh, and it leads us to this wonderful moment in 2023 uh, when I think the the world, I won't say all 8 billion people, but the world is slowly realizing how related uh, these things are, math and theater. And in particular, on the convergence of concepts like AI, where um, underlying, I think most people who are trying to build things with AI or use it understand that there's a lot of math going on, but the reason they like the AI is because it relates to them on a very human level, uh, in a lot of ways, very narratively, like we go to the theater for. Uh, so by, by way of closing out my bio, I, in the process of developing my career after being parts of companies sometimes that were financially very successful and other times not so financially successful i decided to transition more into a mentoring or advisory capacity sometimes i'm operating business uh, or part of things but in general i try to be a mentor to people coming uh, after me and I say the mentor thing with great humility because it's not that I, I understand how things should go in the world uh, or that I possess great wisdom. I come at mentoring from a standpoint of, of trying to be a willing guide that has gone out before people to collect a bunch of data. And I bring postcards from the frontier to say, this is what I saw. And then I hand that data to entrepreneurs that have the courage uh, to do something with it and see what happens. So that's me. I love that. It's um. First of all, I just want to say you do have the real distinction of number one mentor. I'm now going to make a T-shirt and send it to you. Um, Morgan will tell you that I tell people that all the time when I explain you because I don't know other way. The other way I explain you is as an AI biologist, which I know that you do not love, but I do love that term. And the reason why I love it is that that really is an explanation, I think, of like what you did for me in the really early days. Anyone who's listening or has listened before knows that I, I'm not technical. I feel like I'm partially technical now, but I definitely wasn't when we started this. And Morgan also sometimes feels like she's a coder now, and she's also not technical by by background. Um, but I do feel like that you you put me into like a biology 101 class about artificial intelligence and its its potential and really helped us incubate a user case for it that luckily many years down the road i think is really paying off for emma but in the early days when you told me about ai like russ i thought you were crazy like and i'm married to someone who's like a well-respected ai ml guy and i still thought you were crazy so um that's like what i want to talk about today is like 
you have a crystal ball, in my opinion, of being able to see exciting things that are happening in in AI or foresight into AI. And I just like want to hear like, what do you think is happening in this crazy AI world? So first of all, let's be clear for anybody listening, what we've established so far. I now have to defend myself against other mentors and advisors, and I am crazy. Okay. So with that said, uh, I don't bristle at the concept of being uh, called an AI biologist in any any conceptual way. I bristle because there's you're smashing together two concepts, and I, I've used the concept myself, smashing together two or the label myself smashing together two concepts that that have a lot of connotation already for people uh, in the case of ai it comes with all the things that they think anybody listening when they hear the word ai they think of all the sci-fi stuff and danger and terrible computer things and red eyeballs and lasers and stuff like that and with biology uh while you don't get as many evil connotations with it you get this connotation of uh, a really squishy uh, you know, living in the forest, looking at bacterium and gorillas and, you know, E.O. Wilson, Charles Darwin, Jane Goodall, we just look at the world and all its organics and this and this, and that there's, there's clearly a, a bifurcation or, or a juxtaposition of what is biological and what is synthetic or human-made or machined. And I, I bristle because the term will confuse people sometimes, but that's okay. Like my bristling at the term doesn't, doesn't, isn't what matters. Uh, sometimes picking terms like that is very useful because it gets people to think. And the, the thing that I've always wanted people to think about is to, to stop worrying about these distinctions about whether something is organic or not organic in the case of technology, in the case of intelligence, in the case of behavior. Uh, and I find that what biologists have done as a discipline and how they think about things and how open-minded they are about the complexity of the world and how they try to be observers first before predictors and to view uh, uh, what's happening in nature more as a, a co-shaping rather than a mechanical determination, I find that to be a very powerful frame of reference that is useful to bring over into the technical world of math and AI where, where um, for the uninitiated, the people who don't do work on this, I think they think that there's literally a rule set in intelligence where if I just get enough of the rule set, magically there's intelligence when it's really not. It's really more of an organic thing, a non-predictable organic thing. So the the labeling and, and calling that out is is useful for me to get into the crystal ball aspect um while i appreciate being viewed by some that i somehow have a crystal ball that can see in the future uh i actually think it's almost the opposite and that it, i don't believe it's possible to really with any uh, find fidelity, find fidelity, like predict the future. I do think we can take a really good telescope to the past and look at how things have gone, uh, both in nature and when humankind came onto the scene, 
with humans and their technology and nature and see what happens when we get new tools that allow us to perceive and integrate and relate to the world in different ways. And what I have always tried to do in my life, in my career, uh, professionally and personally, is, is to try and look at the past as a guide to not determine exactly how things are going to go, but try and sense where we are. Are we in a moment where things are following some normative, we kind of all know what we're doing. Culturally, the rules are clear. We, we under, understand the social contract. We sort of are at this point with technology where we all know what the tools are that we're all using. Or are we in a period where something has changed and a large amount of people and systems are trying to adapt to that change? I, I really think it's, for me, it's that direct. And so I think the crystal ballness that sometimes people may think that I have is that I just happen to notice that moment when that shifted. And so, and yeah, some of that is, is cause sometimes I have access to information or things that, that are going on in the world, you know, and technology or whatever that other people may not, but it doesn't matter. It's just a matter of time before everybody gets that information. Um, but I try and just notice those moments and then take them seriously rather than ignore them. Mm -hmm. So it creates a huge personal burden on me in a way that when I notice those moments, I have to admit that I'm in those moments. And if you're in a period of, we sort of know the rules, we're in this stable period intellectually, culturally or whatever, um, there's not a lot of value of being an aggressive innovator or chaos machine or whatever. You sort of got to go with the rules because that's what people are agreeing to do. But in a period where there's, where there's been something changed and we have to adapt, I try to embrace that as much as possible too, that you have to adapt quickly. And that what's key about that is the, the adapting I'm talking about is the, do, the doing of things, mm -hmm. the trying of things in the world and seeing how the world reacts. It's sometimes misconstrued as thinking about things and predicting things. Actually, what happens is I just have usually a higher rate of behavior of trying. And I so I got through all the bad ideas and the bad tries sooner than most people that we might be talking about. Um, and so it, 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 it feels like I've been prescient when really I've just probably tried more stuff and failed more. Okay, so we're in a moment right now. I would say that the culture with the introduction of ChatGPT and generative AI taking off, we're in a moment. What is one thing that you've done or tested over and over again just over the past few months um, that has changed your perspective of where things are going or reinforced that like, yes, this is what I saw coming and this is gonna happen? That's good. I like the declarative, we're in a moment. And I feel like you and I just had a moment. Um, <laughs> It, I think you guys have been part of that adjustment because you guys, well, you you took some umbrage early on when I was pushing you when ChatGPT first was released to take it seriously and use it to do your most important work. Um, you took umbrage of it, but then you embraced it and it really was enlightening to see what you guys immediately found valuable 
what literally turned the light bulbs on for you and what was confusing. Um, and I say that not because I had a notion of what you would find, but I almost had an absence of notion. I just knew you needed to use it. And so to see what you were finding useful and not useful, not only showed me what might be uh, clear about where we are with these uh, large language models where we might not be, but also see what, what you valued for what they did. That, I don't think you can predict other people's values. I think you have to observe them. Mm -hmm. And so for me to watch you get comfortable using this tool, I found out the things that you were willing to outsource or to get help from this AI from and things that you're like, nope, this is what I care about. I need to do it myself. That I think is a very important thing for what's going to happen as this moment elongates into a more stable period at some point. Mm -hmm. We're going to see what humans decide is uniquely something that they want to choose to do because it increases their humanity. And then we're going to see what they choose, not because they couldn't do it better, or worse, or whatever, whatever value statement, or it's more economically, but they're going to choose what they value. And this, this, these systems like ChatGPT are going to help people decide the kind of work that gives them dignity, mm -hmm. and the kind of work that doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably contrary to how a lot of people are seeing this moment, because they sit there, and they have blanket statements like work is dignity. No, no, it's not. Not all work is dignity. Not all jobs are dignified. And and we labeled certain jobs like knowledge worker jobs, knowledge jobs, and that gave them some dignity that I'm not sure they deserved, because they think a lot of knowledge workers, if they think about the work that they're they're having to do every day, I don't think a lot of them would say, oh, it takes a lot of knowledge, or I'm gaining a lot of knowledge. I think there there are a lot of repetitive tasks that are actually quite dehumanizing that are hiding within the concept of knowledge work. And so tie this back to this moment, I think, and again, what has changed my perspective is seeing how once people really give into the idea that these things can be helpful to them, how quickly they're willing to decide what they value. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that to be so clear at this moment with where the deck is at. I suppose I might've expected the tech to have to get a little more high tech, but it turns out a language model that kind of can hold the conversation with you for you know 10 20 minutes is all you really need to do to be very clear about your values yeah that's that's what was so interesting to me about when ChatGPT hit the market was that was um how fast people were using it and and really in creative ways to help their life was was really interesting to see like general citizens doing i mean we've been developing a product around ai for a long time so for us it like we have a different thought process i'm sure than a lot of people but it was really interesting to see like even like i just can't get over the fact that like that there was physicians who were using chat gpt to put in different symptoms that patients were having to try to find diagnoses that they weren't thinking of but but these were physicians that were doing it in between seeing patients that were overwhelmed that were like you know trying to write their notes and they were already using it 
in ways that I'm sure it was not originally thought to even. There's a there's a little bit of a historical precedent, on, I think, on why these things happen the way they do. And um, the index in the back of a book was actually a technical innovation, right? We didn't used to keep indices at the back of books. Like humans literally had to invent that. Uh, why did they invent that? Well, you know, once we invented the printing press and books kind of became, you know, pretty, you know, pretty common things. It's like you couldn't in your lifetime possibly read an entire book, you know, on every subject, much less all of the books. And so we we invented this index at the back of the book. And it won't shock you why I'm saying this, because there were people that were like no index fanatics like you must read a book using the index is cheating and i think most humans went man this index is really good because it saves me a lot of time and i don't have to read all of those crazy words that you put in your weird ass book like i can get to what i want and actually i can read the book in a different order in which your brain presented it yeah, I think if you think about what these large language models have done is they've allowed people to re-index knowledge mm -hmm. and access it against an index that makes more sense to them. 100%. Often because it's more human-like in conversation, so it can make more sense to them, right? You know, so I saw something, as you're talking about the, the, the index in the back of the book, I saw something really funny the other day, and I don't know, on TikTok or wherever the heck it was, but it was... Um, it was a, a, a boomer. This is this is not a, an ex on boomers, but it's important that this person was a boomer for the story. And she was basically making fun of Gen Zers because they don't know how to write a check in a checkbook. But like, let's be really honest, like, let's emphasize adaptability, right? Which is kind of what we're talking about. Is that still a valuable skill? I don't think it's going to be certainly not in 30 years. I don't think people are going to be in general using checkbooks. I, I mean, it's a it's a good example. These kind of things get me mm -hmm. fired up because I, I... <laughs> I, I, I just remember as a kid watching people balance checkbooks and my parents writing all these checks. And then one day I learned how to do it. And I went, this is what you're all doing. It's like, wait, this is really weird. When you actually look at a check, I, I don't write checks very often now, but I'm like, wait, this is how we exchanged things like bad handwriting. And we, you know, it's like every time I got to write it out by the number by hand and the format that I was taught, I was like, who does this benefit? This is like weird, like proto language that nobody's actually going to use. And then to write a check in today's world and then process it on your mobile phone. It's like, could we just skip all of those steps in between? And so I tie that why I get fired up about that. I go, when you think through the actual animatronics of what checks and checkbooks and paper and you know ledgers and all these things actually are, why did anybody think the way in which we were doing paper checks was the fundamental thing? It isn't. The idea of debiting and crediting accounts was the only thing that mattered. So demanding that a generation focus on the style rather than the content, the actual action, is a weird damning of a generation to definitely being behind. And I, I'll, I'll go back to books because I think I'm sure for hundreds of years there were people like reading is bad. Words are bad. Don't use words. And if imagine if that had really caught hold and that and we never developed widespread literacy. What a terrible thing. 
Russ, women weren't, there's still countries that do not want women to be educated today that like you will, like they want to put you in jail if you want a female to get educated. So, I mean, we're not, we're not even far away from that. And it's happening now with AI, you know, like we see universities and whatnot that are trying to boycott the use of different AI tools to assist with homework, but that's not going to stop it, people. Spoiler alert. And it doesn't, it's interesting because even on that, um, it, it, in some of these things where people are trying to use, you know, cut information or technology off to oppress certain groups of people, they don't even know the best way to do that because they don't actually know why these things work the way they do. Cursive isn't cool because it's pretty. Cursive is cool because you don't have to pick up your pen. And so the ink flows better. And so if the technology at the time is dipping feathers in a bowl of ink it's a lot better to do that less and so it's a, you see why i'm saying that if your job if you want to oppress people and force them to do bad you know bad slow things that keep them down uh, being mad about cursive is the wrong thing you should demand that everybody writes in print because it's more work with a pen right so you get what I'm saying there. It's like sometimes when people don't actually, even the bad people don't understand, people being bad, don't understand the technology and how it got to where it is. They don't even create the right punishments for generations. Mm -hmm. So if technology could be used to oppress, how can it be used to free up time? What are you seeing or what I, are you? I, it's, good, it's a good question um, or a good statement of the situation. I believe technology is always emancipating. That's its whole point. It is not a technology if it does not emancipate people or persons from something. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean that that emancipation doesn't sometimes get twisted, right? So the Industrial Revolution ends up giving us, you know, exacerbated climate change. But the Industrial Revolution was definitely emancipatory. Mm. Uh, for gazillions of people. Um, mm -hmm. So take that as the assumption for what I'm going to say is that I believe technology is always emancipatory. In fact, it is us codifying what we want to be emancipated on. Mm -hmm. So it kind of helps you, in my frame of reference, kind of see where it's going to go. What are currently the most oppressive things in the world, in your life, in your community, in your city, in your school, in your business, and assume that that's where you're going to aim your technical approach. You're you you're like, it's inevitable you will. You guys, you guys wanted to develop AI and develop on AI because you wanted to scale connections mm -hmm. between women. You wanted to emancipate women from this oppressive uh, set of current technologies and social mores that kept them from being connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so, the reason, I was gonna say, that's the reason why we even started this podcast is we want women to understand and be able to use AI in their general life to make them happier and healthier. I mean, emancipation is a heavy word for that, but I guess it's it's just. It, it, uh, but I, use, I, I put mm -hmm. it out there on purpose because it, it, I'll be very specific. And this will, I'm sure some people it will be controversial for, but uh, until this these large language models showed up on the scene, most of the code, the programming, most of the computers, it was all driven by like English written stuff 
Like it, it, like if you go look at programming languages, you don't see a lot of code that doesn't look like Proto-English. It's It was biased from default. Mm -hmm. And the majority of that code was written by very specific demographics. So all the way down, there's bias along the way. And what's crazy, this is how I say, like things work in weird ways. We wrote all that code for the last 100 years. You know, it literally goes, it goes back further than that. But let's say in the last 40 years, we've written all this code that we're all using on our laptops and everything. All of this biased code, biased data, biased code, led us to the point of developing these large language models and similar technologies, which then end up get blossoming into a whole new surface area of tech that invites a whole new set of groups into it. And you actually need less of all of that bias stuff. So in weird ways, all of that bottling up of the bias essentially couldn't be contained. And here's here's why. This is a little bit of a weird point, but I think you guys will appreciate it. Um, no matter where you start with things like language or knowledge or intelligence, it you can't contain it. You can't control it. That's why power that you were referencing, that's why the state or other people always try and control it by, by physical force because knowledge, information, language itself can't be contained. It's always emancipatory. Mm -hmm. And so these large language models, simply by being large language, are emancipatory. They allow a wider group of people, you guys are included in that, to be part of the next evolution of tech. This is where my crystal ball will completely fail. We've never had a generation of technical development that had this big of a tent. I don't know where all these different groups will take it. I can tell you where my demographic took it. That's very obvious. Here we are. I don't know where now that these tools allow a wide set of people to do something. It will be very interesting what technology develops into. So can, That's kind of interesting, Russ. Uh, sorry, Amanda, I just had a thought um, because I've been reading a lot lately about how, you know, it's interesting because a lot of Gen Zers and, and the generation after them aren't as technically savvy as you would expect them to be because, you know, millennials and growing up with that, we grew up with the evolution of technology. So we had to become uh, familiar with technology to utilize it. But Gen Z and younger generations haven't had that. And it's interesting that this technology is making it so to where they don't have to have that technical knowledge to keep up because it's at their fingertips, just kind of like the internet was when it first came out. Um, it's just a really interesting kind of thing that you don't but need. But this to is this is that. when you know that it's been become emancipatory is when it disappears as a technical field. Like to me, it's like as as somebody who loves math and studied math, it's like um, the greatest thing that ever happened to math was we developed calculators. So once we had calculators and then those calculators got really cheap you know all those super cheap solar powered ones you had as a kid once it was that mass of a technology it meant everybody was as good a mathematician as somebody from the 1600s everybody and i know everybody will go i'm not a mathematician i go yeah but you have a 50 cent calculator that does more math than even the best mathematicians in 1600 you you it's so great when a technology gets baked into society such that there there is no elitism about about what led to that technology. Yeah.
I think it's why like so many of us believe that that AI is going to impact like every industry and every job in one way or another, the way that like the internet did, the way that, you know, pens did, the way the calculators did, the way that Excel did. I am, okay, so I wanna shift us for, for one second because we've been talking about, about LLM. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot. It's like, what do you think is gonna happen with LLMs? Do you think that the way that like the cloud is, the cloud's a bad example, but let's just go with it for this conversation. The way that like most of us plug into a cloud that was developed by one of the big, you know, companies, or do you think like there's going to be a bunch of little mini LLMs? Like, what do you think is going to happen with LLMs in general? To not make how, you guess. Uh, how many brands of dictionary do you know? Well, I couldn't name one, which probably is going to make me sound stupid. Oh, Webster. I know one. See, there what's, we go. What, what's the other one? Britannica. Encyclopedia. <laughs> of course, of course, Rodney knows it. Yeah, I'm isn't not the Oxford Oxford English? And it's like, you know, but could anybody produce a dictionary at this point? Yes, but they're not. I don't think because I don't know their name. You're right. Those it's an interesting thing that. when you think about LLMs. What's going to happen when you codify? To me, dictionaries are fun to think about because it's like. You know what? What is, what's the point of a dictionary? To, to to query data. Although you would never use those words to do it, more or less, right? It's kind of in a way. I don't know. It's like an authoritative source of words and definitions, but but it's not like anybody goes around like you use that word wrong because the Oxford says this. But it is useful as an authoritative reference. Mm -hmm. But but because that's its use it means we can't we can't all be using thousands of different dictionaries right it's that codification into a, a few so i think large language models are one of these things where I, is it going to go the way of the dictionary or or the way of web pages that's my and, that's the question well and so so then you got to get into what what's the utility of these things Web pages that, that proliferate because they, they offer a singular view of the particular author or provider of that web page. They, they are a specific instance of specific things for the most part, where I believe large language models are more about a collective agreement that we're all, we're, we all want to codify language knowledge you know, in, into a few sources. It doesn't mean there won't be small language models. It doesn't mean there won't be lots of those floating around. Just like we all have different, we we all have a dictionary on our on our laptop that maybe it's Oxford, maybe it's Miriam, who knows? Maybe it's dictionary.com. I, I don't know. There, there is a thing on our thing, but when we refer to the dictionary, we definitely don't go, well, my Mac says, you know, we refer to the dictionary. I think you're going to see that kind of thing that happens where there will be small AI models. They're doing a lot of the work, like in between systems, people, their computers, whatever. And then there's going to be the foundational ones that really are like the, the, the wells, the deep wells where we've all agreed to have the, the knowledge. And that's also to your point about clouds, uh, other things that are internet related that people probably don't know in a general way, but it's not, you can't have 35 DNS companies that, that's that uh keep track of all the domain names it's very valuable to actually centralize that yeah yeah 
it's why it's why we're so excited about what we're building with Emma because we think of her like it, so it's I, I think it's it's hard and exciting when you build technology to try to decide what technology do you, do you develop yourself internally and what technology do you lean into other tech companies with and it's something really fun and I, I would say like for anyone who's listening who is a business owner that doesn't even build technology it's really great when you start to think about like, should I be doing this myself or should I be outsourcing it? Or is there a technology that I could lean on that already exists that could expedite this, that could emancipate a problem that I'm basically having, right? In my company, it's a, it's a neat way to, to think as a founder or a boss or maybe even just an employee. I don't know. Yeah, I'm very cautious because I, I, I want to not tell people that I'm, that I'm, using these big words that promise all sorts of things that may not come true. I, I believe in the use of the words like emancipation. And I, and I really do believe all businesses, all entrepreneurs should think in terms of how is the work I'm doing going to emancipate the most people? I really think that's the only way to build a good business. And I, and I mean it in very big ways, but I'm also very humble in these ideas that I am not a technocrat that believes AI will just automatically save everybody. But I do, I do believe over the long haul, having more people contribute to more knowledge and building more businesses and more products and more art in different directions will balance out, you know, the potential for badness. And I'm, I'm saying all that because I, I hear you, you say these things back to me, and I just, I, I want to be careful with people that it is hard work to put all this together. But thankfully, more people can do that hard work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I want to be mindful that you, that I think you guys and, and listeners may want very succinct business things or, or whatever. These podcasts always got to be. Um, I'm making very specific. These sound like very philosophical things, but I'm saying something very specific. View AI not as a thing that will technically save your company, but as a way for you to help define what you choose to care about and what you choose to do. It does not have to define you. You get to define it. I think that's a very practical thing that I'm saying, particularly for the people that I'm talking to today on this podcast. You guys have experienced that. This is why you thought I was crazy. You just didn't think that this was going to be true of technology. Okay, but you just hit the nail on the head. It wasn't that we thought that you were crazy. It's that you, we really thought that technology couldn't do that and by the way like we built it was like we were really good technologists guys like it just it's been moving so fast and in such an exciting way um yeah this that's it you just hit the nail on the head and you know what did this you know what really unlocked it and this brings this whole conversation full circle a bunch of humans talking using their words talking communicating and thankfully we have this technology now that can be part of that conversation and i don't, I don't mean this in some creepy like skynet way i mean it's cool to have a technology that you can converse with in this very sloppy way to mm -hmm. unsloppify your thoughts that to me is a reversion to the past that's why i bring it back i, I looked at the past i go what gave humans all this wonderful ability we seem to have it's because we sat around the fire and chatted we're going to keep doing that. That's why everybody wants to do these podcasts all the time, even though it's like you can't make money on a podcast. Radio's dead. You can't do any of this stuff. But we're never going to stop having these chats. 
because this is what really matters. And at tech, this is why I say the future of tech looks exactly like the past, looks exactly like the present. We're just going to keep chatting with tech. And now it can chat. And I don't mean chatbots. I mean, literally, it can just be there bubbling around and all these different things. And we get to shape it just like we do sitting around the fire. Mm -hmm. And it's great. I'm just trying to make sure listeners understand. I am not like a mystic. This is very practical stuff. You're not and I mean, it for entrepreneurs, like, I think you guys have all experienced how quickly you can adapt now because you embrace the tech. You can change the product. I've seen you guys in a couple of years completely change your product multiple times. And, it, and you never went, we're pivoting. You never elevated to this very painful, discreet thing. You just said, we're going to try this. We're going to go this way. We're going to deprecate that. We're going to go that. And it, it just was this flow. Mm -hmm. In nature, nature doesn't go around going, we're pivoting. As a species, we're pivoting. <laughs> it's we're just things change. We're doing it. You know, like if we were um, not a serpent, a snake or whatever. It's, so it's interesting. It's like so it weird, its own like differentiation process. Like that's a part of like what happens within our bodies. Like our cells, our systems become more differentiated, more like focused and able to do the one thing that they're designed to do. And now we have we have technology that can do that for us. I'm like I don't even use Google anymore. I would rather go to GPT or Emma. Emma knows me. She knows the questions I ask. She can like train or she's been trained to respond to me in a way that makes sense to me. And so I'm like she's my you know, the tool that I prefer to go to or, or chat GPT to get the information that I would typically get from another more broad, less differentiated system. And there's a nice, nice thing that's happened, particularly with you, I've watched happen is that as you've tried to train this technology, it's trained you back. Mm -hmm. So this thing that's happening between Morgan and Emma is it's, uh, I don't look at them as separate independent thing. I really don't, I view you as a person, so don't get me wrong. But I'm saying this, this thing known as the company Emma is, it's all of that. It's that interaction network that you guys have created. That's that, that is really critical. And I, I will, I'm not picking on Google, but I'll pick on the technology of the path wasn't able to provide that rich of a feedback loop that you could develop that, that wholeness of the relationships, the interactive relationship. You, Morgan, today can do something with Emma that materially changes what Emma is. Mm -hmm. And now that pushes back. So you have to change in response to Emma. It's freaking cool. This is, this is adaptation. Mm -hmm. It's uh, in the really early days. I like I remember just when Morgan was like, I think I'm gonna have Emma do this or have Emma do that. And she was like, Can I do that? I was like, like, yeah, you can just do it. And then all of a sudden, now I had a call with somebody um just yesterday with a potential investor, and it was a very, very technical call. And our CTO was there and Morgan was there, and Morgan kicked it, you guys. Like it was so impressive to hear her understand these incredible incredible technical questions and be able to answer so well. And the reason why is because what you just said, Russ, like as she's been developing Emma, Emma's been teaching her and changing her because they have this own like symbiotic relationship together. It's like sometimes when I talk to Emma, I feel like I'm talking to Morgan because we were part of what created her. It's crazy. This is this is the way. It's um to bring us back to the beginning. I would say that I still think that you're an AI biologist because 
if Charles Darwin was alive, I think that's what we'd be interested to talk about on this podcast was like the adaptability around AI. And I kind of feel like that's where this conversation ended up going today. Does it like, does anybody else agree or am I just being too philosophical right now? No, I feel like that's how all of our rest calls go. We're like, we start you, what you described at the very beginning about like biology and being an observer and being this guide. I'm like, I almost started taking notes when we first started talking. I was like, oh, this is not a mentor meeting. It's being recorded. It's a podcast. <laughs> but you you do like there's this the way that you think and the way that you inspire us as a company um, and as a technologist is to kind of open our minds and to observe, to get that feedback, to push ourselves a little bit more. And it's yeah, I mean, it's been such a gift to have that experience with you and then to be able to so, see like, so oh. you're really you're making a good point. I love when you say things because it's like. The, the automatic transcription is on in this call. You don't need to take notes, but you choose to. Why do you choose to take notes? What's important to you about note-taking? I mean, I, well, I, I love taking notes, period, in life. It helps me remember things better. I much prefer writing than typing, but I typically type in our meetings or like work meetings, but I love the act of writing. I will never give up the act of writing. Yeah, it does something, right? It does something. This is what I think is emancipating in different ways about these things. When you are the taker of the notes, you are choosing what to retain and to encode it in different ways. I actually believe that's what things like Emma will help people do for people that may not, they may not be note takers in the world. Emma may be a different kind of surface area for them to pick out things that matter to them in the world and not transcribe them like an automatic transcription is going to do. Where poor Rodney is going to have to read that transcription and he's going to have to, he's going to have to extract out of it. When you take the notes in real time, you're using the world as it exists directly to decide what's salient. I believe that Emma is going to do that for a lot of people that may not have your experience, Morgan. They may not be great note takers, but by by experiencing Emma, they're going to be able to take note of their relationships of, in the world, take note of things that matter to them in life that they otherwise wouldn't know to do. That's emancipating to me. Mm -hmm. By the way, Rodney um, loves AI so much. He's probably the only one that wouldn't be going through this transcribed uh, podcast. He'd probably be using some AI tool to already do it for him, Russ. <laughs> if it's me, I'd be going And I'll, I'll give you, a, this will be very fun. You can tack this onto the end of the podcast, Rodney. As you run the transcript through some system where you summarize it or whatever, uh, it'll be very interesting to look based on what you heard on this podcast, what the automatic transcription did, and what any summarization or whatever you're going to do, what, how well the points hold up. We've had a good podcast. If no matter how you grind it, how you take note that the spirit, the essence of this conversation sticks. A bad podcast is one where as you grind it a couple different ways, its coherence just goes away. I love that. I'm definitely going to keep that in mind as I'm using GPT to do things like summarize this episode. <laughs> well, so listen, so I know with summarizing the episode that we are at the end of the episode, I could keep talking to Russ forever and ever. Um, he is not available for all of you who are listening. He is too busy with us. I just want to preference that. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, he's amazing. We love him. Thank you for being on Russ. It means the world. Honestly, what you've done with Emma and just as being my friend, you are such an important part of my life. So I really had fun having you on. 
to something that as many of you guys know, I never thought I would ever do a podcast. I thought I'd hate it. And I actually really have been enjoying it. So I guess in some ways this podcast has AI has kind of like emancipated me to have a podcast about AI and I love conversating about it. So this was really fun guys. So thank you. I thank you guys too. It's very fun. I am very, and I'm also, it's cheesy to say, but I'm super proud of you guys. Oh, thank you. you I, I think when I first met you, you, you would never have wanted to talk about AI in front of audiences. And now yeah. you, you guys do it so beautifully. Oh, that so true. I love it. I know who would have thought, right? But all right, guys, have a beautiful day. Um, thank you so much and stay tuned for more podcasts in the future. Find us soon. Bye guys. Thanks, Russ. Bye. Yep.